Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 19, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, October 17th is 6963. That's 6963. This morning, A Vision for You presents Freedom from Obsession. OA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. With respect to our binge foods, we have been rendered completely neutral. No fight, no temptation. The problem has been removed. We experience freedom from obsession. Here to speak on this topic this morning is Eddie C. Eddie is a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Virginia and is dedicated to living the program of recovery and carrying the message that, indeed, there is a solution. And welcome to the line, Eddie C. Good morning, and thank you, Leah. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Thank you for being here and inviting me to share my story and my journey with you. Um, I'd like to start uh, this morning with a short prayer that is meaningful for me. (sighs) Let nothing disturb you, nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Nothing is wanting to the one who possesses God. God alone suffices. And when I remember this, my life goes along much better. Well, good morning again. My name is Eddie C., and I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. And I am uh, now residing in Virginia, but I am born and bred a Jersey girl by heart. And... um I don't like to pump my own gas, so all you Jersey girls don't know what that means. So let me just share a little bit of my story with you. Um, I am the middle child of three girls, uh, that proverbial troublesome middle child. Um, Although I was not so much troublesome as as I was frightened, um, very conscious of my behaviors um, in respect to uh, just trying to make everything go smoothly at home, which was uh, really a losing battle, but you know, at that time, it, it seemed like that if I, if I was the one who tried to be, be perfect, that everything would be okay. Um, my parents were older when I was born, and they were struggling in their relationship. My father was an alcoholic and a compulsive overeater, and my mother, she, she poor thing, she was just bewildered by the whole thing. Um, my older sister was a lovely person. She, is, she was very bright, graduated from high school when she was 16. She was a nurse by the time she was 19. She was beautiful. She was striking. People used to refer to her as Elizabeth Taylor. And I was always trying to live up to that. She was a lovely person, though, inside and out, I have to say. And she, today we were, we were very close until she passed. I lost her this year, and so we were very close. Uh, but she was my idol. I tried to emulate her in all things that I did. And then there was my younger sister, the rebel in the family, who was always in trouble. She would drive my father to distraction, and I would always try to compensate for her by being, um, you know, perfect. 
And so I was always in the middle, never sure where I belonged or who I was. As a child, I was quite thin. When I was younger, I was very sickly and um, but really didn't start to do that whole weight gain thing until I was um, probably in my late teens or my early adulthood was when I started to use food as a, as a drug, the drug of no choice, as I've heard it said on this line. But food was always important to me, even when I was younger. Um, I measured the holidays by the food my mother, the foods my mother would prepare for the holidays. Um, she was an excellent cook. She was one of those people. She'd stick her head in the fridge, come out with two or three things in containers, and she'd make this great meal. But uh, as a child, I was awkward, um, very shy, quiet, um, very introspective. Um, as I said before, I always had to. I always felt like I had to uh, make up for everybody else's defects. Um, my early patterns, um, as I said, my father was a compulsive overeater, and I mimicked many of his behaviors because I just thought everybody ate that way. Um, he'd eat soup bowls full of ice cream and piles and piles of food on his plate. Um, he was a, a bus driver and uh, required to pass a physical every year. So we'd always dread that time when um, his physical came up because, um, you know, he had to go on a diet to pass his physical because his blood pressure was always off the, off the charts. And, um, you know, we were, he was miserable and we were miserable. And um, so we would, uh, you know, have to put up with this until he got his blood pressure down and, you know, he'd pass his physical. And guess what? He'd go right back, you know, to uh, his eating behaviors when he got through that. Um, and I did the same thing as I got older. You know, and that's the way I lived my life for many years. As a child, I was always fearful. Um, I remember the occasions my father would not show up at home for a few days. Um, he'd go out in the binge. He and my mother would argue or something would not go the way he thought it would be. And, you know, he wouldn't show up for three or four days at a time sometimes. And, um, I, you know, and I, I was, I, I remember being so frightened, so frightened about how would we live. My mother didn't work. Neither one of my parents had a great deal of education. So there were not a lot of, you know, skill sets there. Um, and uh, money was always from paycheck to paycheck, and, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd start to worry, you know, where do we live? We didn't have any extended family. Uh, you know, where will we go? Will we have money to eat? That was always a big thing, and, uh, you know, I'd always, it was always like it's such a stressful time for me, and I remember he'd come home, and I'd be ecstatic, you know, and I'd, again, I'd go into that perfect routine. I'd try to keep everything in the house calm and quiet. I tried to keep my sister under control. Um, you know, I'd, my mother would be annoyed that he was gone and you know then I tried to like smooth things over between the two of them yeah you know in my you know 10 year old or 12 year old or even 14 year old mind I, I thought I had the power to do this and when it didn't work of course I went to the food because the food would always make me feel better so I would do anything to keep my father happy and I thought that if I was perfect then everything around me would be perfect as an adult I grew into those behaviors uh, both in uh, trying to make my world perfect and, you know, turning to the food when it wasn't so. I left home at 18. I went to nursing school and humiliating my sister. I got married at 23. And guess what? I took all those behaviors with me. It's the only way I knew how to cope. Although the weight was there, um, I had started dieting as an adult and briefly as a teenager. The binging and the dieting cycle really started in earnest after I had my daughter. I was 26 when she was born, and um, I didn't gain much weight when I was pregnant. But afterwards, um, learning how to cope with being a new mom, um, shortly before my daughter was born, my, my father passed away. And my mother, uh, financially, physically, and just emotionally, she couldn't cope with being alone. So, um, you know, she came to live with, uh, with us. And my husband, God bless him, you know, took her in. 
and uh, she, um, you know, came with her own baggage. You know, I, I had my baggage, and she had her baggage. And, um, and I don't mean to make her sound like she was a dragon. You know, I mean, my mom was a good person. She tried hard, and she helped us a lot. But, you know, as I said, she had her behaviors, and I had mine. So here I am coping with this new child. My husband had recently started a new job, and he was away a lot. He traveled a lot. And, uh, you know, my mom, you know, came, and we were all adjusting to this new way of life. And uh, that's when the binging and the dieting started in earnest. Um, I used food to uh, cope with the fact that, um, you know, it was a very stressful time. I I was working, um, and uh, my daughter was, you know, kind of a colicky baby and, you know, whatever. And so, you know, the food always made me feel better. You know, I'd come home from work. Um, I worked uh, 11 to 7 when she was growing uh, as a child, a young child. I'd come home from work, and, um, you know, I'd have this huge breakfast, and then I'd go to bed, and I'd get up, and I'd have dinner, and then I'd go to work, and I'd eat, you know, I'd eat my way through the night because uh, it would not only did um, it help me stay awake, it just made me feel better. It made me feel better. So the first time um, my weight hit 200 pounds, I went out and bought a new scale because I thought for sure that the scale was broken. It could not possibly be the fact that I was consuming enormous amounts of food. That really never occurred to me. And then I went to Weight Watchers. I have multiple lifetime memberships in Weight Watchers. I tried pills. I tried hypnotism. I tried shots. Um, I tried water pills. I tried laxatives. Uh, You name it. I've tried it. Um, you know, some of those behaviors were just silly and stupid. Um, some of them were dangerous. <clears throat> uh, fortunately, none of them killed me. But um, you know, I, I tried everything. I was I was just desperate to get this whole situation under control. <clears throat> I felt that I was flying through the air um, at warp speed, and I had no idea where I was going. Um, or how I was going to get there, or what was going to happen when I got there. So it was, I, it was just a very frightening time for me. And I'd go, um, you know, to Weight Watchers or one of these other diet programs, and for a while, I'd have control, and uh, you know, I'd feel better. And then, um, you know, it would just before you know it, it would start all over again. And I'm looking here for my little quote in the big book because I don't, I don't, uh, I don't. Here we go fact is that for this is from page 24 and uh, you know there is a solution that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink and I had that crossed out and put in food our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month sometimes even the meal before for me uh, ago we are without defense for, uh, against the first drink and of course I have that crossed out and have bite in my in my big book but um and and that's um that's how it went for me for many years you know I I'd, I'd uh, put the food down and um before you know it um I would pick it up again um without even a second thought of what this was going to get me uh or where it was going to get me where it was so anyway you know I began to isolate from my family um, I would use any excuse um, to um, not to attend certain events or um, to uh, you know get myself out of commitments. I'd commit to something and then you know at the last minute I wouldn't show up. Um, 
and uh, family functions were a big stressful stressor for me, um, especially my husband's family. <laughs> Again, I don't mean to make my husband's family sound like awful people. They were lovely people. But they were a very large, close-knit family, and I didn't grow up like that. I mean, we had, like, zero family. My mother's family never really got along very well. My father's family was a geographically a distant family. So, you know, I felt overwhelmed, and I would go to these functions, and I would feel like I just wanted to find a corner to get into and hide. Uh, and so, barring that, I would pick up a plate and fill it with food and, you know, walk around and look busy and, you know, eat my way through the function. But, um, you know, I would invent any excuse not to go to these things. Um, I have a history of migraines, and I would invent – I'd invent a headache, or you know, the day before or an hours before um, just because um, I didn't want to go. And um, I think that was always a part of that was always the fact that every time I showed up for a function, I was a different size, um, and I was embarrassed by that. So I'd, I'd start an argument, or um, you know, invent some you know illness or whatever. So I'd give an excuse not to go. And you know, at most times, as soon as the car left the driveway, I'd be in the kitchen, you know, with my head in the fridge, looking for whatever we had. Um, and, you know, cooking up a storm um, with whatever we had in the house. You know, um, I like French toast, and I would make like a whole loaf of that while, you know, I was home by myself. Um, or, or uh, you know, pancakes, pasta, anything, anything that was starchy and sweet, um, you know, that I could fill up on. And I and I would do this for the whole day. You know, they, I'd be in and out of the kitchen um, cooking and, you know, or, and then I would fall asleep because, you know, I'd be on that food high. And then I'd wake up and I'd go back to the kitchen and I'd start all over again. Um, and then I'd be in the kitchen frantically like a maniac cleaning up before they came home at night. So they wouldn't realize I had spent the day, the evening, the afternoon, whatever, um, you know, eating myself through the kitchen. You know, like they couldn't tell from the fact that I was 200 and plus pounds. Um, and this continued, you know, for years. Uh, my daughter was born in 1972, and this continued for years, on and off, on and off. Um, I, you know, I'd be a normal size for a very brief period of time. Sometimes the day after I got to goal weight, you know, the, the, the obsession would start again. Uh, and this continued on until 2004. And two things happened in 2004 that kind of stick out for me. Um, first of all, um, I found out from a friend um, that I knew at church uh, about OA. And um, so I went to a meeting. And uh, like most people um, that go to OA, they are looking for, you know, a diet. Um, and I was no different. I was waiting for someone to give me a diet and put me on a scale and tell me how to eat. Uh, what I wasn't looking for and didn't want to hear about uh, was let's talk about God. Um, several things had happened in, in the fam in our family, or in our uh, with my daughter and son-in-law and my mother, and um, I was really ticked off at God, that, to, that, and that's putting it mildly. So um, I had uh, some situations, as I said, that had happened, and my relationship with God was tenuous at best. Um, so I went to like maybe two or three meetings, and I thought that you guys were all nuts, and so I left. But in November of 2004, my daughter, who was married by then and living um, in Virginia, fell and fractured her ankle in multiple places, and she was unable to bear weight. And uh, she has a large family. I think we were up to, um, I don't know, maybe five or six by then. And um, I went down to help her. 
So now I have no idea what I weighed at the time. Um, my top weight, I think, was somewhere between 290 and 300 pounds. I had stopped weighing about 270 because, you know, I just didn't want to get on the scale anymore. Uh, but I knew that, you know, I mean, I obviously hadn't changed my eating habits. So, you know, I continued to eat my way through that, that crisis also. Um, but she lived in a two-story home. And um, I would go up the stairs like an 18-month-old child trying to learn how to climb stairs. I would go up on my hands and knees, hand over hand on the steps, really pulling myself up the stairs because I could not. First of all, I couldn't see over my apron, you know, to, to, to see the steps. And I couldn't hoist my body weight up a stair that, you know, a nor- in a normal fashion, one foot in front of the other. And uh, and I was sleeping on a um, on an air mattress, you know, in the guest in the living room, and I would have to roll off the air mattress onto the floor, and then I would have to crawl to the floor to a chair, and then I'd have to hoist myself up to get on my feet again. Talk about being humiliating! Thank God there was nobody around to see me. But uh, anyway, yeah, I had you know the, all the physical. Um, Side effects of, of that, carrying that much weight. I had continual rashes on my body, especially in my arm, under my arms, under my breasts, and my groins. Um, of course, I had an apron uh, from the excess the excess weight. I had a, you know a terrible rash under that. Uh, my blood pressure, uh, my cholesterol, my blood sugar were all off the charts. So um, I got back from my daughter's uh, a few months later, and I thought to myself, you know, I really do need to do something. You know, it's like this thought that just kind of popped into my head. Oh, really? So God gave me the gift of desperation, and I started out, you know, not in a way, of course, why would I do the most obvious or sensible thing first? I started out with a doctor, and he was a naturopath, and and we were doing that whole supplement thing, and um, he sent me to a counselor who, of course, you know, gave me this diet thing to follow, and, you know, she talked to me a little bit about, you know, emotional eating and whatever, and, uh, you know, she, you know, I mean, she tried hard. Both of these people, I'm not, you know, they weren't quacks, they were operating within the parameters to which they were familiar, but they didn't have a clue as to what I was. So um, the uh, this went along for a little while, and then through the same friend at church and um, another, another woman at church, I actually um, found um, a counselor who herself was a 12-step person. It's funny how God gives you these little hints that eventually you wake up and you take them. Um, so um, she had been in, in program for quite a while, um, and she worked strictly with uh, eating disorders. And uh, so I went to see her, and, you know, she started to talk to me about, um, you know, OA. And I said to her, oh, no, I have tried OA. Uh, they really didn't have anything to offer me. And I, I never forget this. She just kind of sat there and smiled, that little smile that she had. And, uh, you know, she, she didn't push. You know, she just kind of moved on. But she kept on coming back to this and then she was like a dog with a bone she wasn't letting go and so she literally you know, she literally pushed me into a meeting um so on september 15th of 2005 i walked into a meeting in marlton new jersey desperate enough to finally listen to what they had to say <clears throat> i guess looking back and knowing um what some people in the rooms have been through um i was quite blessed because because i got it I got it quite early in my journey. Um, I don't know if I would call that a spiritual experience or the garden variety, but um, I had what I called my aha moment. Um, 
and it happened early in um, in November of uh, 2005. And I went to a um, intergroup meeting, um, and it was called um, Abstinent Through the Holidays. And they were doing a little workshop um, about, um, you know, the holidays were coming up. It was getting close to Thanksgiving. And um, there were several people um, with, you know, years and years of um, what, you know, at the time everybody called abstinence. And it was still abstinence, but they had more. I didn't realize it at that at that time, but they had more. They had more than just being abstinent because, um, you know, if it was just about being abstinent, then I wouldn't be here today. Um, but there were, you know, there were uh, several people who spoke, but you know, one one person in particular, um, you know, she really um, just, it was like she had this this beam directly into into me and that she I felt as though there was no one else in the room, and she was talking directly to me. And she talked about, you know, how she had struggled in her program and how finally she had picked up the big book and started to go from the big book to the big book from cover to cover. Now, you know, I know that when I first went into OA, we didn't do – when we went, we had a big book meeting, but we always started uh, with, you know, Bill's story. We never did the forwards, we, and the doctor's opinion was not something that was normally read. So um, she had started to go through the big book, and, um, you know, that she had gone through it page by page, and she started to enumerate all the, you know, things that she had pulled out from that and how she had applied that in her life. And she ended with um, this statement. And I felt as though someone had opened the door to my mind to that that attic that I had up there that was filled with crap and junk and cobwebs from from years and years of of, of the abuse that I heaped upon myself. And she said that she now, through this program, had the power to choose not to put poisonous or toxic substances into her body. And it was like somebody reached into that attic and pulled the string and the light went on. And I, I don't know how to, to, to describe it any other way. Uh, it just, it, it was like a miracle. And I left that meeting and I thought to myself, this could be mine. I could have this. So I started out with a food plan. I got a sponsor um, and I did meetings. I did just what I was told to do. I listened to my higher power, whom I call God. I just took that ball and I ran with it. And I have not looked back since. Thank you, God. Um, it's um, Now it's been, you know, nine years. It was nine years this past September. Um, so here I am in uh, 2014, and I'm nine years and 160-some-odd pounds um, without, you know, 160 pounds of, of, of weight loss that I have been, been able to maintain through the grace of God and the power in this program. Now, there's no original thoughts coming here. Everything that uh, I've learned, everything that I've shared, you know, I've learned from the big book or I've learned from listening to people who've gone before me in the program. So now what? This, this could end here. Um, this could be like any other diet, if not for this program. Uh, but this is recovery, and this is different. This is as different as night is day. Why? Um, I have a very good friend who is fond of saying, once you know, you can't not know. And the first time I thought I heard that, and I thought to myself, geez, that's really bad grammar. you know. But when I started to live in that frame of mind, um, 
I realized that it's profound. And, and for me, it's, it's like it's how I live my life today. Once you know, you can't not know. Now, I have a disease um, that's twofold in nature, an allergy of the body, my binge foods, and an obsession of the mind. And now I know that, and I can never not know that again. So I'm just going to read a little thing from the big book here. Okay. So so this is, um, let me see. I'm sorry, I'm, I lost my place. Okay. So the way I react, and, and then I have an obsession of the mind, um, the way I react when in the presence of those substances. This is the greater part of my disease. This is the great lie. So here from the, uh, in More About Alcoholism on page 30, it says, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker or overeater. Uh, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And so this was, this was the great lie for me. This was, you know, this is what I did every time I lost weight. Um, you know, I'd, I'd have that, that um thought that this time I, you know, I could do this. I, I had uh, lost the weight and uh, I understood what was going on now. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I'm a nurse. I worked in a hospital that we, we specialize in um, heart disease. And, um, you know, I go and talk to people about their heart disease, me. And, and I, I, later on, I thought to myself, how, how foolish I must have looked at the weight that I usually was when I went, that these people thought I had anything, any, any wisdom to impart to them. But that this is the great lie, you know, and it happened every time I lost weight because I could not stay away from the food long enough to, or, or it just, it just is just the great lie. Uh, the insanity that tells me that this time will be different. If this was so, then the first time I went to Weight Watchers would have been enough, but it wasn't. So while it is necessary to put the food down, step zero, as I've heard it called, it's not enough. Abstinence is wonderful and as necessary as it is, is not enough. Because abstinence, abstinence alone will not offer me the peace and serenity I seek. And it took me years to understand that, years, um, to realize that I ate because I was trying to hide some, from something. I was trying to hide something, cover something up. Um, and that the food was just a drug. It was just a, a cover, um, you know, something to help me get through life. <sighs> the serenity I seek comes from working the steps, all the steps to the best of my ability. And, and again, so now you know, you can't not know. Um, you know, working the steps is what got me where I am today. And working the steps in order, one through nine, um, you know, I did um, my first three steps quite quickly together. Um, four and five took a little longer. Um, I'm a practicing Catholic, so I, I actually gave my fourth step away twice, you know, at first to a priest and then to, um, you know, someone who helped me, you know, guided me through this process. Um, and, um, you know, then I did six and seven, and then I did eight, and eight took, it took a lot of struggling for me. Um, I had a lot of people that I owed amends to. Um, um, when when I made when I did my ninth step, one of the first things I did was I wrote a letter to my mother. She had passed um, 
by then. And I went to the cemetery where she's buried, and I opened that letter and I read it um, because I felt that, you know, I I just felt that I needed to do that. And, it was, and uh, <laughs> it's funny, just um, when I was getting ready to do this, this talk this morning, and I, you know, I had this little outline that I follow because I've done this a couple times now. And uh, my daughter happened to be here um, yesterday afternoon. And uh, we were talking, and and I realized that um, I had never made you know a, a really good amends to her. You know, it was always a, you know, my my daughter happens to be in program too, and uh, you know it was and always talked back and forth about things that happened when she was growing up and whatever. But I never really made a formal amends to her, and that shocked me when I realized that. Um, and so yesterday afternoon, there I was, you know, all these years later, making a formal amends to my daughter. So, um, you know, things things evolve as you go along. Things change. You change. Um, you know, I guess hopefully, at, at least and for me, thankfully, uh, you know, your insights grow and uh, you realize that, uh, you know, it, it's a process. It, it never ends. You know, we talk about the fact that you don't graduate from this program. You don't you don't get to the end of the journey. You don't get to collect two hundred dollars. You just you just keep going on. And so here I was making an amends to my daughter um, yesterday afternoon. So anyway, um, now it's um, it's uh, now it's all about, at least for me, um, acceptance of these facts and what I do with them. Um, so I have two stories in the big book that really resonate with me, and I read from them frequently. Um, the first one is on page thirty-five, and more about alcoholism, and it's it's Jim's story, and I'm sure you know most of you are familiar with Jim's story, uh, but. Um, I remember the first time I read that, um, I thought to myself, how could he not possibly realize that putting milk, putting uh, alcohol in his milk was going to make a big difference? But, you know, it was the same thing for me, you know, like just putting out two cookies on the table at night so I could have them with a glass of milk before I went to bed uh, because, you know, now I had lost all my weight. So I was entitled to these two cookies before I went to bed. You know, it's it's that crazy, insane thinking uh, that uh, – just takes over our minds and uh you know we don't remember we don't remember what those two cookies can lead to so anyway i just wanted to read this little this little paragraph that actually precedes um jim's story on page 35 it says what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink slash food uh Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Or what is he thinking? And I can remember when my when my mother was alive, and, and my mother was a diabetic, and she was a very disciplined individual, and she was a very compliant. She's probably the most compliant diabetic I ever knew in my life. And she would just look at me, and I think I just baffled her. I, I really, she didn't, she just didn't understand. Well, of course, she wasn't a compulsive overreader, so why would I expect her to understand? And she would just say to me, "But just, you just need a little discipline. You just need to remember that you can't eat like that." And I would say, "Yes, mom. Yes, mom. You know." And she would tell me to, you know, like to straighten up and, you know, get some strength, and and it just. It just didn't. She didn't get that. I didn't get it. She, she just. She, I baffled her. So, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story. And I um, let me see. I did read from that. Here in the, here in this story is the great lie, the twisted thinking 
that at this time it will be different. But here also is a prime example of what happens when I choose to live in resentments and anger. And that goes on and you know, unfolds as you read Jim's story about how he was annoyed that he was now a salesman at the firm that he used to own. Um, and uh, that he really, he's really setting himself up because he, he can't let go of that and move on. And, uh, you know, he, he failed to enlarge his spiritual life when he was introduced to the program, um, as I did the first time I was introduced to the program. In fact, I didn't want a spiritual life, so, I mean, I didn't even bother to stay long enough to think that I could have one. And uh, so, and he chose to go back and live in his resentments and anger. Um, and for me, that's like the most dangerous place to be. It's like standing in a pool of quicksand for me. Because <clears throat> when I start to get into that whole... Uh, resentful anger cycle um, you know all of the pl- the positive aspects of what I already have in life and what I've already achieved and what is out there for me they all go away because all I can see is that resentment and the anger and um, I was when I when I was uh, getting my my uh, outline together um, for this I remembered, I I love musicals, and um, my favorite musical is Man of La Mancha. And there's a song in Man of La Mancha that comes towards the end that uh, Sancho Panza sings, and it talks about um, a pitcher and a stone, a a pitcher of water and a stone. And there's a line in the song that says, whether the pitcher hits the stone or the stone hits the pitcher, it's bad for the pitcher. And that's me. It doesn't matter if if somebody... um, hurts me or, 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 or insults me, it doesn't matter because if, if I hold on to that, if I hold on to the resentment, if I go back to that way of life, either way I lose. It's bad for me. So um, that was probably the main hurdle for me when I started to, you know, work the steps is to, because, um, you know, I, I'm Italian and, and my, my mother used to say to me, remember, always remember that vendetta is an Italian word. And my mother could carry a resentment, God bless her, forever. I mean, once you got on her bad side, you you really were in trouble because it was almost impossible to get back on her good side. And I grew up like that, and I am like that, unless I remember that this program teaches me that I don't need to be like that. In fact, I I absolutely – it's toxic for me to be like that. So resentments, overcoming uh, being resentful and angry – that was a major hurdle when I did my, when I worked my steps. But today, thank God, um, I am I am living most times in a resentful free life. So today, I know that if I pick up my binge foods instead of my big book, I am risking more than gaining weight. I am in danger of losing both my spiritual and my physical well-being, and perhaps my life. Uh, now, my favorite story in the big book is on page 407 in the fourth edition, and it's entitled Acceptance Was the Answer. And I'm just going to read for you this little paragraph that is always my go-to when the resentment comes hot and heavy in life. And here it is, page 417. And acceptance, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it was supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, 
and I had that underlined and highlighted. And exclamation points happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, another underlined and highlighted and exclamation points, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. Oh, let's see. So, so does that mean that um, that today I am never sad, angry, upset, hurtful, or fearful? Or fearful? Not at all. I am still subject to and subject of life. And you know, I've had this has been kind of a rough year for me. Um, I've had uh, several things happen um, that were you know stressful and uh, quite sorrowful for me. As I mentioned earlier, um, I lost my sister this year. She was the last. We were the two of us, the last two remaining members of our of your family of origin, um, and she died um, after a very long and painful um, battle with can- with cancer. Um, I, by the grace of this program, was able to be there for her. Um, I was there when she passed. Um, thank God, um, I was able to you know say all the things that I should have said when we were younger. Um, and, and um, you know, I was able to be there for her and my brother-in-law to be present, uh, not to be in the food uh, because, um, you know, I was sad or angry that she was dying um, or scared. Um, but I was able to be there for her. And, I, and I, I like to think that I was a support not only for her and her children but and, and my brother-in-law. Um, I lost two very close to very two other people very close to me um, this year. Quite suddenly, um, both of them were well. One of them was younger than me. She was my roommate from nursing school. She died suddenly, um, and her and her mom, who was I was very close to. Um, my husband um, is having some chronic health issues. Uh, in fact, we're going Tuesday uh, for some diagnostic tests. So, you know, I'm just praying that, uh, that, well, obviously I'm praying for a good result, but I'm praying that God gives me the strength, um, if if it's not good, to be there for him and to support him and to uh, get us through whatever we need to get through. So, you know, life happens to all of us, and it's not always pleasant, um, but it is what it is. And if um, I find that when I live in this, in this um, state of mind, um, that um, I can face what needs to be faced, do what needs to be done, and still remain grateful. Um, when I when I got into program, I didn't understand these people who used to get up and say, I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive overreader. And I thought to myself, well, I'm grateful. I, I'm, I'm happy that I'm here and I'm recovering, but I don't know what I have to be grateful for. And today I know that there is so much to be grateful for, that, um, that this disease got me where I needed to be. It got me where I am today, which is in a far better place um, than I was. So what it, what it means for me is that now I have a place to go to that is not to the food. It is to my higher power, the God of my understanding, for help and wisdom and grace. I do not need to dig my way through bakery boxes, gallon containers, or foil bags to deal with life, nor do I want to. On page 83 of the big book are the Step 9 promises, and I'm sure that you are all familiar with them. Um, I was going to read them, but I think that um, everybody knows what they are, and I have to tell you that every time I read these things, I cry. (laughs) So it's probably not the best idea to have me sobbing on the telephone, but every time I read these, um, I, I cry because I have experienced each and every one of these in my life 
um, you know, on a daily basis um, since, you know, September of 2005. Um, and, I, and I'm just going to say that, um, you know, at, at the, the last paragraph here, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will materialize if we work for them. And, you know, it's that if we work for them, uh, you know, it's like anything else in life, um, you know, that, that, that is good and satisfying. Um, you need to work for it. And God is always there, but he doesn't hand us anything. He expects us to do the footwork. These promises have come true for me, as they can for anyone in this program willing to pick up the spiritual toolkit laid at our feet, but they don't just happen. They come after working steps one through nine and then living in steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. And again, once you know, you can't not know. Then, as it says on page 164, great events will come to pass for us and for countless other. This is the great fact for us. So what is this great fact? Well, for me, it is this and nothing less, that today I live my life a free woman, graced with the presence of God in my life, free of the obsession and neutral in the presence of food, willing and able to serve others with a joyful heart, ever mindful of the gift I have been given, excuse me, and the responsibility to pass it on. If I enumerated all the gifts in this program, that this program has given me, we'll, we'll be here all next Sunday. But in closing, I'd like to share on just one, and that is faith. Some may call this spirituality, but for me, it is faith. Faith in the God to keep me close to him and abstinent, and abstinent, to give me the grace to handle whatever this day brings and believe that he will be there with me. Faith to believe in myself and my program, that if I do today what I did yesterday, I will be okay. In the big book, we are promised that God will do for us what we could not do for ourselves. My faith has led me here, and I believe this completely and without, and without reservation. Through 30 years of fighting this disease on my own, I never once experienced the peace and serenity that is mine every morning I wake up in this program. I'd like to leave you with a short poem that I like of what symbolizes what faith is for me. What is faith? Is it that spark of light that comes in the night, that comes in dreams and without speaking seems to say, believe? Yes, that is faith. That fills my heart with awe of things I know but cannot see, of wonders that are but should not be. Yes, that is faith. Is it giving without return or thought or living without concern or thought of recompense? Is it believing without seeing or acting without fear? a sense, a feeling that all is well and God is near? Yes, that is faith. Strength for the asking, love everlasting, calm in the storm, peace when you mourn, hearts that will mend, life without end. Yes, that is faith. If there are any newcomers on the line or even not so newcomers and you are still struggling, if anything I've said today resonates with you, let it be this. This miracle is available to all who seek it. No ticket, no reservations, no admissions free required. Just a sincere heart and a willingness to do what you need to do. So I'm going to say what we used to say um, in the meetings in Marlton, when we would close our meetings in Marlton, New Jersey, keep coming back. It works when you work it. And with that, I'll close. I wish you all a peaceful and God-filled day.
Eddie, thank you so much for sharing your profound and inspiring story of transformation as a result of these 12 steps. Thank you very much for your service this morning. And we'll offer Eddie's contact information at the conclusion of this recording, so hold on for that, please. Now we're going to take some a little bit of time for questions that you might have for Eddie, and you can present your question by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Deanna, this is Kim in Texas. I hear Deanna and then Kim in Texas. Go ahead, Deanna, please. Thank you. My name is Deanna B. from Chicago, a grateful recovering compulsive overeater, and I just wanted to thank you, Eddie, so much for that. You brought, you gave me peace. Uh, I, I was crying because of your emotion. It was just so beautiful. The one thing that you said, you said so much, but the one thing, the question that I have is that I have the third edition of the book, and I couldn't find what you said you read regarding the resentment when you oh, had a resentment. Oh, uh, acceptance is the answer? Is that is that? No, no, it was on page 417, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's from the story. The name of the story, and it is in the third edition. It's called, The name of the story is Acceptance Was the Answer. If you go through your index in the front there, or your table of contents, rather, it should be listed. I think it is, anyway. It, well, Acceptance Was Your Answer, right, because it's stars yeah. don't fall here. So Acceptance yeah. Was the yeah. Answer, and I will yeah. find it there. Yeah, we'll find again. it in there. Yes, you will. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was my honor. It's on page 439. Oh, there you go. Thank you. 439. 439. Thank you. Thank you. Vote for your service this morning. Um, my question is, um, if you could talk about step two. I love that you mentioned your faith, and I am a believer. I have a, a um, I've never wavered in my faith, but I'd like to know if you would talk about your step two because as I'm going back through the steps, coming back from a relapse process period, <laughs> um, I'm in step two, and I wondered if you would talk about your step two in um, how that interact? I mean, did your faith come before or after, or what was that process for you? Thank you. Pass. Oh, oh, thank you uh, for the question. Um, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, I, I've, um, I've always had a belief in God, so I didn't, I didn't need to, you know, think about. I mean, I know there are a lot of people who come into the program; they're agnostic or they're, or they're uh, atheist. Um, I came in the program with a belief in God. Now, did, were God and I talking? No. But, um, you know, I always believed that there was a God. I mean, I was, uh, I was as, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a practicing Catholic, and, um, you know, I always um, had a belief that God was out there. Now, did I believe that God could really do anything for me? No. Um, I, not in that aspect of, you know, you, you have that um, – Thing that you know God's busy running the world and dealing with the big crises, and uh, you know that I should you know be able to pull up my big girl panties and handle this on my own. Uh, so uh, that was something that I struggled with. Um, 
as I mentioned in in my uh, when I was speaking that um, we had I had some situations that um, happened in the family that uh, you know I kept waiting for God to step in and fix it for me. Um, just just briefly to describe one without going into a great deal of detail. Uh, as I mentioned, my mom lived with us, and she lived with us for 25 years. Um, and she was fairly young when my father passed away, and. Um, my my daughter and son-in-law uh, lived with us for a brief period of time also. Um, he was in the Navy, and uh, he was deployed, and um, uh, my daughter came home. She had uh, uh, her first child, and she was pregnant with her second child. And so um, when by the time he got back, uh, she was in college. She had gone back to finish her education. And, uh, you know, so it was easier and better for them if we all lived under the same roof for a while. At least that's that was that in theory it seemed like it would work you know uh but um my son-in-law and my mother really had some some really um personality and they were both good people they just didn't deal well together let's just put it that way so in the end my mother wound up going um leaving our home and and going back to live with my older sister um under not very pleasant circumstances and so you know and i kept saying to god you know here i am i'm trying to do this good thing and why aren't you helping me well, you know, unfortunately, it took several years in program before I realized that, you know, like my father before me, um, I really was never proactive in situations. I always reacted to situations. And so, you know, the situation went badly, and I helped things along, although I didn't see that at the time. So I kept saying to God, you know, fix this. I'm trying to do something good here. Fix this. So, you know, for a long time, um, I felt as though God really didn't have anything to say to me. Um, and it was not till I got back in, when I got into program, when I started, you know, came back the second time, um, that I realized that, that God had been dropping these little, these little things in my life all, all this time. And I just chose not to see them, or I chose to push them aside because it wasn't the way I wanted them to be. So um, when when I came back into program, um, I was able to see that, you know, God's plan is not necessarily my plan and that his plan is always better than my plan. So fortunately, I was able to, uh, you know, make uh, some amends with my mother, not fully, but, you know, before she passed away. Um, we at least were on speaking terms, and I am very grateful um, to, for the fact that she, she did not die that, and we were not speaking. That when we, you know, because that I'm not sure that um, you know any any letter I read over her grave would have would have you know given me the peace that that um, that I was able to get when I was you know when I made my amends that way. But um, yeah, I I just it, it took a long time for me to realize that um, all I had to do was you know step back and and just you know listen to what God had to say. And um, you know to me it was um, just a matter of of, of reinstituting. Um, like prayer in my life um, and not just uh, showing up for services on Sunday, mass on Sunday. And, you know, and, but, you know, to make God a, a, a personal God, to realize that he indeed had a personal interest in me. Now, I, I, I can't tell you how I got to that, but, you know, I guess just by going through the steps in the program, I, you know, I came to believe, and I do believe today wholeheartedly that he has a personal interest in how Eddie's life goes every day. Every day, and you know, so all I have to do is sit back and and listen to what he has to say, and just you know go with the flow, as they used to say. Um, and uh, that's just sort of been my faith journey. 
Thank you, Kim, for that question. Who's next with a question for Eddie? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Santa. Santa, your turn. Go yes, ahead. good morning, Eddie. My name is Santa H. from New Jersey. Oh, good. Another Jersey girl. <laughs> yes, born and raised here. I first want to offer my condolences to you for your losses this year. Oh, thank you. Um, my question to you, um, again, my name is Santa H. from New Jersey. I am a newly recovered compulsive overeater. And I am about to be embarking into the world of sponsoring, and I have mixed feelings. And I just wanted to know if you can speak upon your experience, strength, strength and hope in the area of sponsoring that you can embark on me and many other of us on the line who are newly recovered and going into that world with that ask. Oh, yeah. Um, sponsoring has been a little bit of a rocky road for me. Um, the first two or three people that asked me to sponsor them, um, I, you know, it's it's a frightening thing when you realize that um, you are going to, uh, in, you you have the potential to impact somebody's life. Um, and you can either do that positively or at, when you're first, at least for me, when I was first abstinent, you know, all those things that came into my head about what if I make a mistake and, and, and what happens if they, if they do this or they don't do that. And, um, you know, this, um, I mentioned earlier that I, you know, I had a counselor, a wonderful woman, and uh, who was in OA and um, and sponsored herself. Um, and uh, she said to me, "So now you're God?" You know. Um, so I, you know, I said, "No, no." She said, "Well, that's how you're acting because she said it's not up to you what they, you know, what what they choose to hear and what they choose to take away from, you know, what you give them. The only thing that you can do for them." Um, is to um, share your experience, strength, and hope, um, she said. And then, you know, after that, it's really up to them. So, you know, I tried to remember that as the first several people that I tried to sponsor or who asked me to sponsor them, you know, sort of either, you know, just decided they didn't want what I had or, uh, you know, just never bothered to, to call me back or, or whatever. Um, and it's kind of um, – I don't know, ego deflating is the word I'm looking for, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, I found it to be very, um, oh, my gosh, you know, what am I doing wrong? And that's when she said to me, you know, she said, you, you can't, nobody, nobody, gives, nobody gives you the ability to, you know, make someone else take up this program. She said, the, you, the only thing you can do is, is share what you have. And she said, and if, you, if you work your program the way you're supposed to work your program, if you do what you need to do, if you live the life that um, you say you have, then that will come across. She said, and some people will see what you have and they will decide that it's too much work and they don't want it or they want to go with, you know, we talk about the easier, softer way. They want to do it, but they don't want to do what you do. She said, you really, she said, there's nothing really that you can do for that, but just, you know, be there uh, for them. If they decide that, you know, at a later time, Maybe they did, they made a mistake and they want to come back. Um, you know, now just as a not really an example, um, I mentioned that earlier that my daughter was in program. Now I don't, you know, I don't sponsor my daughter because I never considered sponsoring anybody I know a good idea. Uh, but uh, you know, she left program. She had a relapse about two years ago, and she was at a program for um, well over a year. Um, 
and 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 at first I really struggled with that. I I felt like I had let her down. That you know that you know she went out um, of program and I could not pull her back in. And I tried. Believe me, I tried the first few months that she was gone. You know I I. I'd give her all these things that I had seen, and I'd tell her about all these wonderful programs that, uh, that we were doing on the on the phone line, and, and uh, you know, and I and I what I did was I created a rift between her and I because she felt that you know I was just I was very disapproving of the fact that she was no longer in program. I was just scared. I was scared because I knew, based on my own experience, where she was headed. You know, so you know, finally I had to let it go. Finally, you know, God knocked me on the head and said, "What are you doing?" You know, he said, you pray, you, you, you be her big book, her living big book and you pray and I'll take care of the rest. And, and that's what happened. So I sort of adopt that now when I sponsor, um, I have, uh, as I mentioned, my daughter has a large family and several of my grandchildren have some issues and, uh, my son-in-law travels a lot. So I really, I sponsor, I have like one sponsee now. Um, and, um, I don't really have, I don't feel I have the um, physical and emotional um, excess to handle anymore. But, um, you know, we talk. We don't talk daily, but um, we talk. And, um, you know, she she calls me when she needs to call me, and we have, like, special set-up times that, you know, we do, we do get together and chat. But, uh, you know, and I've had her for a while. So, you know, like, she's like my success story right now because I've had her for quite a while. So, um, you know, that's, I, I just, I guess I would say that if you're, you know, going into the world of, uh, you're just getting into sponsoring, I found it frightening in the beginning. Uh, but if you fall back on what you know, and, um, and, and your big book, and you pray that, and not everybody wants what you have, uh, but, you know, there will be somebody out there who wants what you have, and somebody who you will make an impact in their life. Um, and that's and that makes it all worthwhile. My daughter has since come back in the program, um, and you know we have this wonderful rapport that we, that we have, uh, you know, over uh, you know what we share with our programs, and uh, you know, and I'm grateful that she's back. But um, I can't let that you know like affect my program. I mean, I'm going to be here regardless of what happens to her. I'm glad that she's back. But and and the same thing with you know with your sponsees. If they leave, you know, I mean, you can feel badly that. Because you know what they're walking away from, but um, you know you 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 do what you need to do, and um, you will impact somebody's life. Thank you, thank you again, Eddie, for your service this morning, and Deanna, Kim, and Santa for your questions. And I'm in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to close the meeting now with the reading that we always close with here on a vision for you, page one sixty four. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. 
May God bless you and keep you. Until then.